please uh, do have a seat. Good to be with you. Uh, we're continuing our series in Philippians chapter 4 this week. Uh, please do turn there. And um, we do have some Bibles. If you've not got one, if you're in, I'm sure you have, but uh, there's, we have a whole load um, sort of left on the front of the church steps. They're just over there at the welcome table. If you'd like, they're, they're Gideons, I think, aren't they? It will be on the screen, but if you'd like to take a copy away to give to someone or to be ready to be able to give someone, we have some uh, for that. So, uh, reading from just three verses, chapter four of Philippians, if you want to follow with me, and uh, reading from the NIV. Paul writes, Therefore, uh, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So I've got some shocking news for you. I want you to uh, brace yourselves, and for those on Zoom, please hold, and indeed in here, please hold on to the side of your chair so you don't fall off. Sometimes people in churches fall out. Awkward laughter. Sometimes... People quarrel. Sometimes people who belong to churches, Christians, act in ways that are at best awkward or at worst dreadful to one another. If you've not experienced that yet, praise the Lord. You may pick yourselves off off the floor now. Drop that bombshell. Conflict happens. It's part of life, I guess. But particularly in church, particularly in church, it can seem ever so, ever so painful. Philippians, not only is the joyful letter, and hence the series titled Joyful Living, but also woven strongly, one of the main threads in his letter is this call to unity. This call of being together in and centered around Jesus Christ. Right at the start of his letter, the epistle, in verse 27 of chapter 1, he writes, Paul, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together. I've put emphasis, as you can answer understand on those particular themes as one for the faith of the gospel and indeed that theme of unity chapter 1 verse 1 verse 18 verse 27 chapter 2 1 to 4 verse 14 chapter uh, verse 29 chapter 3 verse 15 this call into the church that there seems to have very few issues he's having to address he reminds them to be joyful rejoice in the lord always and to maintain 
unity. As Paul writes to the church that he loves and longs for, he wants to remind them to remain and be so focused on Jesus and remember that we are part of the body. Thank you, Verity, for reminding us that if the hand or the foot wanders off, it is detached, dismembered. He's already reminded them in chapter 3, verse 17, in this, uh, in this journey together to, to emulate, to take the example of Paul and himself, to look at Paul and follow how he does it. And Paul has already said, have a look at Jesus and have the same attitude or mindset as that of Christ Jesus, chapter 2. Why keep your eyes upon Jesus, upon what it means to be following. For remember, in chapter 3, as Phil reminded us last week, our citizenship is in heaven, not of this earth. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, who, you whom I love and long for, stand firm in the Lord. In other words, this reminder, in standing firm, there's a tendency, a possibility, perhaps even a likelihood that it isn't always natural or easy to stand firm. Why the reminder, stand firm, if we're not liable to drift or sway or be dislocated. And so Paul in writes in chapter, verse 2 of chapter 4, Euodia and Syncte, I plead with you, Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche. We're not given a reason why they are at odds in conflict, in disagreement, have fallen out. We don't know. But Paul is saying to them, please do have the same mind as that of the Lord and follow my example, chapter 2 and chapter 3. He's already uh, reference, underlined, highlighted so much in order that as he comes on to a few issues in the church, this one particularly, he spotlights. It's a bit unusual to call somebody out in public. Imagine the gathered in their homes, in their churches, reading it out. My dear beloved who I long for, you're my joy and crown, and now you odia and sink it. Gosh, Riveted in their seat. What's he going to say? We don't know what it is, but we know it's significant enough for Paul to consider their disagreement to be unusually significant, worthwhile of some characters on his papyrus. Now, as I was reading this and pondering this, I, I kind of thought, Paul, you're a very brave man. Very brave indeed. Calling someone out publicly, in my experience, tends to mean that they're going to take offense. They're going to get the hump. They're likely to withdraw, at least emotionally and relationally, relationally maybe even not darken the doors of the fellowship. Again, they may stop their giving in protest. How dare you? And they may walk away from the church. My advice to Paul would have been you're on thin ice. Paul, watch out. 
Why do I say that? Well, because in my experience of ministry, challenging disagreement, trying to work through when people fall out is like a minefield. It's really tough. It's really painful. But Paul says to Euodia and Syncate, pleads with them, pleads with them to have the same mind in the Lord. Remember, that's a very similar phrase to chapter 2 when he's speaking. I'll refer back to this in a minute. Have the same mindset as that of Jesus Christ. And Paul has already said to them, follow my example. Have a like mind to me. Look at me as how I've established the church as an apostle, as someone you look up to who loves you, is passionate for the Lord. Have a similar mind. I guess it begs the question, why? As Paul singles out these two beloved sisters, why in a church that seems to be so going so well, why does he address this one thing? Why does he call it out? Why does he address it by name to the people? Maybe he's wise and he doesn't give us the issue. Because if there was an issue, we'd say that's not my particular issue at this particular time. And we'd absolve ourselves. We would say this bit of teaching doesn't apply. But by leaving it unstated, saying there's a disagreement, there's a falling out between two people. Whenever we are faced in the reality of being in church life in relationship, with tension in relationship, with conflict in a church. We have to heed what he says. I think Paul understands that unity is so, so precious. And that when cracks or fracture lines or fault lines develop, even when they begin to deliver on a kind of low scale, it actually is a point of weakness, a point of danger. Think about a crack in your wall. <gasps> Where's that come from? Uh, a few um, years ago, I was with, um, I, I, I got my car and I'd driven, driven along a road and it had been resurfaced and someone coming the other way was going a bit fast. You know, it says don't drive more than 20 miles an hour, loose chippings. And lo and behold, they were and a loose chipping hit my windscreen and it made one of those really annoying little cracks, a little blemish. A little mark, and there's a little crack, and I looked at it. it wasn't in my eye, eye line of sight and, and all that, but it was over there on the passenger side, and I thought, oh, what does that matter? Well, winter came, and it was a really cold night, and one morning I woke up. What do you think had happened to that crack? It had grown. It had grown a lot. You see, when the frost, the, the cold, and in that to read... The challenge and the pressure, the crack grew and divided the glass and became something that disfigured or caused the whole thing to fail. Think about a fracture. I've never had a broken bone to, to my knowledge. Uh, maybe I had a cracked rib, but um, I won't dwell on that one. But I have seen a fracture cause 
discomfort and it has a big impact upon someone. Even something that is called hairline. Have you ever had a hairline fracture? Ever been broken a bone? Yeah, a lot of nodding. It's not a nice experience from my observation, is it? Even a hairline fracture, so to speak, causes the person to be less than optimum. In other words, they feel compromised. They feel like they're not going to reach out and engage in life in all its fullness because it hurts. And so the response is that someone with a fracture, even a hairline, so to speak, a little thing, tends to become protected, inward, withdrawn, and doesn't engage in the way that they should crack, a fracture, or a fault line. A fault line, if you're a geological person, is a point of weakness. When pressure comes, there's a rupture, and something dramatic can happen, whether that's a small quake or a large one. Disunity fractures cracks, provides a fault line in fellowship. Notice that Paul doesn't take sides. He's not saying, now that Euodia, you know, I quite like her. And that Syntyche, she was a little bit, she looked at me funny one day. No, he says he pleads with both of them. Doesn't take sides, but pleads with, implores with both of them equally and reminds them of their their greater calling. In verse 3, we hear this. He says, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Pleads with them, reminds them of who they are, of the significance they have been to the gospel and perhaps sees that things are perhaps in jeopardy. He says, you're servants of the Lord, you're faithful believers, you've served and contended in the cause of the gospel. Don't get stuck and don't allow this crack, this fissure, this fault line to develop. He calls upon someone in the fellowship, a true companion, unnamed, although we do hear of Clement as well. I just wonder again if Paul is using his way of speaking to the hearers, the other believers in the church to say, he says to them, Um, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, who's he referring to? Maybe there was someone that was known to them. That's the true companion. He'll help. He's he's a peacemaker. Or maybe it's just a reminder of Paul to say that the body of Christ, we're in this together. And he's calling upon each and every member of the fellowship, calling upon us, calling upon you. When we see discord and disunity, it is in our laps. It's not someone else's agenda. It's about us. And he reminds them just how important this is. Because their names are in the book of life. That's a traditional title of honor frequently used in, in, in Jewish understanding of, uh, for the people of God who've suffered persecution but have nevertheless remained faithful. References in Daniel and Revelation and Isaiah and, and Luke. He's not singling these women out and saying, go on the naughty step. Consider your actions and come back crestfallen. But he is pleading with them and reminding the church that they are unified in Christ and disunity fractures. Pleading with them. Overcome the dispute with one another. 
he draws them back a reminder in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. He says, if you've any encouragement from being united, that word again, with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Don't look to the interests of your own, but to the interests of others. He's reminding these precious sisters, these contenders for the gospel and the cause of Jesus. That in their spirit living, in their following of Jesus, the outworking of that is fellowship with one another. Of relating to one another. And that relating must be, should be, is t- characterized by tenderness and compassion. Because that's the character of Jesus, the mindset of Jesus. A mutual love, a unity of purpose. It should, in addition, and this is where uh, the rubber hits the road, lead them to put the interests of the other ahead of their own interests. And because they weren't doing this, the implication of that and the outcome of that is self-evident, the converse of what it means to be spirit-filled believers. If it's not characterized by the spirit that Paul has spoken of in chapter 2, it's characterized by something else. A broken nature, a learned pattern in the world, not of Jesus. Richard Foster in his amazing book, Celebration of Discipline, really, really helpful, classic, kind of in Christian literature of, of the last 40 years. He writes this, if you will watch these things, you will see, for example, that almost all church fights and splits occur because people don't have the freedom to give in to each other. And here's what's important to remember. It's not just the big things, the major fallouts. Sometimes those things begin small, a mild irritation. A little chip, the beginning of a fracture. I was reminded of that slightly curious phrase, but I think it's pertinent in Song of Solomon. It's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. Unity, as Paul continually stressed, in in these general ways, to euodia and syncope and by implication to the church at large, is always implemented in specific ways. Disputes. They're worked out in real time on the ground, one quarrel at a time. So how do we work through it? How does how do we implement, take hold of what Paul says and the truth we've learned from Philippians today? First thing to say is that it's hard. It takes effort. Resolving something doesn't just happen coincidentally, but it's so, so worth it. A commentator looking at uh, the the kind of wider picture of conflicts in the world uh, would say this, but I think it also applies to this very particular about interpersonal stuff in a church. He says, the world will never have lasting peace as long as men reserve for war the finest human qualities Peace, no less than war, requires idealism and self-sacrifice and a righteous and dynamic faith. 
As I was just thinking about that, and know we've celebrated Armed Forces Day just uh, this week, and uh, there's all sorts of days in the calendar. It struck me that we don't celebrate a peace day anywhere. I know we have Armistice Day, where we remember those who sacrificed their life, but we don't have in our national calendar a peace day. We don't set aside in our nation, maybe because it's not a characteristic we tend to think is that up there on the scale. For you, Odia and Syncate, because they understand the implications of living in the sphere of being a citizen of the King, of the Lord, living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that they are confessing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and bowing the knee in, in worship. Because of that, reconciliation with one another becomes fundamental and pivotal. In chapter 4, verse 2, Paul pours all the theological richness of that beautiful Christ hymn of chapter 2, 6 to 11, into a single dispute between two women in a church that is generally doing well. And for him, there is no separation between the reflection upon the incarnation of the Son of God manifest amongst us and the behavior of that incarnation that is required of us as individual followers and believers. They go hand in hand. There is no difference. Just as an aside, it's, it's worth noting as, as we talk about Euodia and Syncate, that these women, Paul refers to as fellow workers, as, as co-laborers, co-workers. A word the apostle reserves for a, 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 a close circle of our friends, of associates who've been particularly helpful to him in fulfilling his calling to preach and reach the Gentiles and share the gospel to the ends of the world. Who else would this label apply to? To Priscilla and Aquila in Romans, Timothy, Titus, Epaphroditus, Philemon, Mark, and Luke. Names that we're much more familiar with than these two women. Since Paul takes the unusual step of admonishing Euodia and Syncate by name, perhaps actually it's because they held really prominent positions amongst the Philippian congregation. I can't make this as a conclusive case, but perhaps they were even among the overseers and deacons for whom Paul mentions already in the opening verse of chapter 1. So the takeaways, apart from coffee and tea on the way out. The takeaways, the so what's. Sometimes relationships in church and church life is less than perfect. It's often messy. That might be a shock to some, but it might be something that is also oh familiar to many. But in this, the truth be told that you're not perfect, and neither am I. We're a work in progress together. That when Jesus calls us and we bow the knee and, and accept him as our Savior and Lord, he adopts us into his family with everybody else who has made that confession 
And the Spirit is within us, but we are not made perfect in the twinkling or the wave of a wand. We are a work in progress. Work out your salvation as we preached about and learned about a few weeks ago. George Whitfield, writing in 1750, that's a long time ago, said this, Those that will live in peace must agree to disagree in many things with their fellow laborers and not let the little things part or disunite them. Written on the 29th of June, 1750. If I was good at maths, I'd calculate that that's something like 350-something years, 70-something years ago. Pete will tell me at the end. But it was true then and it's true now. Take home. When there are niggles and falling out and disagreement and, and potential breakdowns in relationship, maybe small or perhaps have got bigger, put Jesus back at the heart. Maybe even physically come into the church and, and look up at the cross and think, if it, it wasn't for Jesus, if he hadn't called me, we wouldn't be part of this anyway. It is all about him. Focus on chapter 2. Have the same mindset of that of Christ Jesus. Allow his trajectory from being in glory to being born of the least amongst us. Living as a servant and being crucified even to death on a cross. Consider him. Have the grace to allow others to help Paul references Clement, and you, when he says, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, allow others to help resolve. Others can't resolve it unless there's the attitude of one's heart to be made right again, to bring forgiveness. Someone can't artificially manufacture it. If you have fallen out with someone, it's between you and that other person. But others can help without apportioning blame. Another take home. It's really unlikely that you're 100% right in any falling out. Have you noticed that? Pride says, oh, I'm right. Jolly well, everyone should see that. It's usual that we're not 100% blameless for any fault or when things get choppy. We're broken, but the Lord is at work within us. Someone wrote it like this. I thought this was quite helpful. All your dissatisfactions with the church seem to me to come from an incomplete understanding of sin and brokenness. What you seem to demand is that the church be be. Sorry, that the church put the kingdom of heaven on earth right now and here, and that the Holy Spirit be translated at once into all flesh. The Holy Spirit, however, rarely shows himself in such a way. To have the church be what you want it to be, just like you would want it to be, would require the continuous miraculous meddling of God in human affairs. And yet God has chosen to operate in another manner, we can't reject that without rejecting life. Christianity makes a difference, but it cannot kill the age. What's he trying to say? When we are dissatisfied, it's something 
something to do with the fact that we have a conception of it shouldn't be like this. Absolutely. We are called into unity. We are called together in Christ that the old age is done away with and, and that we are made perfect in Christ and we will see him clearly rather than through a glass darkly and there will be no more suffering or dispute or sickness. All those things we have this conception. It shall be like that. Hallelujah. And it will. But we're not there yet. And sometimes it's messy. And sometimes we have to work hard to sort things out. And sometimes we have to always exercise humility. Sometimes dissatisfactions drive people out. They're hypocrites. They claim something and they're so far from it. They fall so far short. Yes, we all do. But that doesn't deny the fact that he's at work and he's Lord. And this is his kingdom and he will work out his purposes and he will build his church. So my final takeaway is please don't walk away or get cynical or withdraw or escalate it. Unity, togetherness, being the people of God here and now, have been separated through coronavirus for 18 months and finding our way as we regather and group and who will be here and, and have some disappeared and gone somewhere else. Unity is a work in progress. And as we re-relate to each other and get reconnected and discover that We've had 18 months and stuff's happened and people might have changed and be living with fear or pain or, or, or grief. May we bear with one another and work unity out. It's a work in progress and it is living and it is dynamic and it is so, so precious. So just a parable to finish. You may have heard this, you may not, but may the Lord speak. Once upon a time, two siblings who lived in farms next door, adjoined each other with their land, fell into conflict. It was the first serious falling out in 40 years of farming side by side, sharing tools and machinery and insights and information and, and sharing the effort and the task. And it just was good. And then it fell apart. It began by a small misunderstanding and it grew into a major difference and finally exploded into an exchange of bitter words followed by the silence over many weeks. One morning, there was a knock on Philippa's door. She opened it to find... A man with a toolbox standing outside. I'm looking for a few days labor, a few days work, the man said. Perhaps there's a few odd jobs, tasks that I could get involved with here. Can I help? Yes, she says, the older sister. I've got a job for you. Look across the stream, the river, that farm over there. That's my neighbor. In fact, it's my younger brother. Last week, there was a meadow, nice meadow between us. But then he took his bulldozer to the riverbank and now there's a bog because he let all the water out and it's just a mess. I think he did it to spite me. But I want to go one better. You see that big pile of wood that is by the barn? 
I want you to build me a fence, not just a little fence. I want you to build me a wall, a big eight-foot wall fence. Don't want to see his place anymore. That'll show him. Carpenter said, I think I understand the situation. Show me the nails and, and where the, uh, the, the, the post, uh, the hole digger is, and I'll be able to do the job, a job that pleases you. Well, the older sister had to go out into the town to get supplies, so they, they helped just get a few things ready, and then she went off for the day to sort out what she needed to do. And so the carpenter worked hard all day, measuring and sawing and nailing and, and constructing. And at about sunset, the sister returns. The carpenter's finished the job. Her eyes opened wide. Her jaw dropped. There was no fence there at all. Instead was a bridge. A bridge stretching from one side of the bog to the other. A fine piece of work, handrails and all. And that neighbor, the younger brother, was coming across, his hand outstretched. It was such a surprise, he said, to build this bridge after all I've said and done. And the two siblings met at the middle of the bridge, taking each other's hand. They turned back and looked and saw the carpenter hoist his toolbox to his shoulder. No, wait, stay a few days. We've got other jobs for you. I'd love to stay, said the carpenter. I'd love to stay, but I must move on. So many more bridges to build. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus, that when we are far away, when we are living as best we can and, and often failing at that, you considered us, though enemies worthy of rescue, redemption. And more than that, you adopted us. to your family. Thank you, Lord. And representatives of that family are here next to us. They're on the screen in front of me on Zoom. Thank you for the beloved fellowship we're part of. And Jesus, where there's historic things that are still causing fractures and brokenness and cracks, Lord, would you give grace I plead that there should be restoration, reconciliation, forgiveness. To look to the interests of others, not just to ourselves. We thank you so much for our sisters and brothers. We thank you for this family you've called us to be part of. We know it's not perfect. But we ask you to keep building us together. Thank you, Jesus, that you name peacemakers as blessed. And as we pursue you, as we seek you, as we grow as disciples, may forgiveness come easily. 
May bitterness not take root. May grudges not be held. May the saints, those mature in the fellowship, be good examples for others to look to, to emulate as Paul was to the church in Philippi. And thank you for the example of Jesus Christ. Lord, where we've got it wrong, where we've made mistakes, where we've hurt and let down and been brusque or blanked. made things worse forgive us and give us the grace to rebuild through the name and the power and the commission of Jesus